Hey everyone, it's Michael. In this episode, I interviewed Beatriz or Bia dos Santos Diaz, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences at the University of Washington. In this position, Bia is contributing to a modeling project related to stock assessments of the herring fishery in the Prince William Sound in the Gulf of Alaska. Specifically, Bia is investigating the drivers of herring spawn timing in order to improve our knowledge about the herring population and associated stock assessment models. In addition to this project, we discussed the path that Bia took to obtain her PhD and what her PhD research involved. We also discussed her views on modeling and the role of modeling in science and management. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. start this podcast and sure. what it was like the idea sorry i'm like interviewing no, you <laughs> no, it's, i mean honestly like in my mind these go best if they feel like a conversation where the guest talks at least 60 percent of the time but that mm-hmm. means that i'm fine talking like 40 percent of the time i mean it could be i could talk more but kind of that's not entirely the point um mm-hmm. so it started like maybe two years ago um now a colleague and friend of mine stefan partolo Uh, just posted like he tweeted just like hey wouldn't it be fun to like do a podcast on environmental social science and i had been thinking along similar lines just wanting to feel more creative it's something that i've struggled with within academia for i would say a while i guess i've been in it for like 15 years and i've sometimes just wanted to do something that felt more entrepreneurially or more creative than kind of the next uh piece of science not to denigrate science, I just noticed for myself that that was something that was uh, felt missing. And also just, uh, we really wanted to build more community within our academic fields, but also between our academic fields and other folks. So Stefan and I are both what you'd call like commons people. I don't know how familiar you are with that whole crowd, but we fall pretty squarely within that group. Like I've been part of you know, the commons community for, for a very long time. Like the word of commons and yeah. all this, like, yeah, I pers- like, when was that? In 2018? Yeah, 2018, I was helping, helping um, Charlie. Schweik? Yeah. Oh, so you so know Charlie. He did, yes, I know. He, uh, so I want to show you mass. And right. I was right. like one of the volunteers that laid like the 24-hour seminar series which was amazing oh. i was like so impressed for like the organization and everything and everything ran so smoothly okay um all right so let's get back to that when we start talking about umass because we want to do that <laughs> for sure um so yeah we kind of just started it was an ex- it was totally an experiment um it felt you know you have the normal challenges of feeling like this is not counting right in the ways that you know the next paper is going to it's not as legible necessarily to folks who make decisions about your future all that stuff yeah um and i think that's you know academic academia has its own version of that but i think you see that everywhere you know people uh only see certain parts of other folks and so it's it's how how strategic do you want to be in trying to make one part of your other of yourself or another legible and we all have our own versions of that but um but it was really just um, kind of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and saying, well, let's just keep making episodes. Let's not worry too much that it's, you know, the, the quality is kind of B, B plus. It's not like, we don't sound like Radiolab. Although to be honest, like that's almost overproduced to me when I listen to it now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. how many bells and whistles do you need to kind of make a show? I mean, I, for all I know, you love Radiolab, but... Um, so, I mean, I like Radiolab, actually, and, and it's interesting you mentioned podcasts, Bia, because I've, in the last four months, become like a total podcast junkie. It's been like kind of a coping mechanism to like maybe feel yeah. connected more. Um, and so I listen to like Planet Money a lot, Freakonomics some, but I'm always kind of uh, on the lookout for new stuff. 
Um, so yeah, any podcast recommendations that you have, you know, I'm sure listeners would also be interested in hearing. So I'm really a slightly weird person. So I really like true crime podcasts, which is horrible. It's not and horrible, for, yeah. It's like for a lot of people right now, it's just like way too much. Sure. But I've been on that one and I've been listening a lot to Code Switch. That's amazing. I've been like following them for a long time. That's another NPR and podcast, right? Yes. Okay. They're amazing. Can and you tell me what also, you like about them? So Code Switch is awesome because they talk a lot of about uh, like race and mm -hmm. culture and ethnicity and different like backgrounds. And it's all about like people that have to switch their code to navigate society. And I feel like really uncertain on that because I'm not from here, I'm Brazilian. Right. So depends on where I am. I'm like always switching co the code. And also right. because we are like on this climate right now, I'm also a mixed race uh, person. So depends on like, I always like kind of like navigate life, like switching codes, which is sure. weird. But it's just like not because it benefited me, but because it's like how I was seen by people and how I interact with people. And it's just interesting. And yeah, I've been like doing okay. that on job as well. Yeah, so code switching, I understand, is this idea of, of switching the way you talk, basically, switching the way yeah. you use language. Yeah, and I being like, without even like knowing that when I was working with fishermen, fishermen a lot, like in Mexico, in Brazil, in New England, I, you have like this little code switch because you're like coming out of like this academia that sometimes is super hard, a lot of words that I, most of times I have to research some of the words that people talk and I, I I hear that's you. not okay. It has to be like more accessible. So like mm. switching codes <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the challenge of doing some of these conversations is that we could now just talk about this for the next 55 minutes. And I don't want to just leave it because I think <laughs> it is important for the reasons you just mentioned. I mean, it's, it is interesting you mentioned um, kind of doing it automatically, doing it subconsciously, because that makes sense to me. I think there's the idea of code switching to me. It seems like it's something it's both something that feels in some ways universal. Everyone does a bit of it, but then it becomes a challenge when some folks have to do it in ways that are much more conscientious and less mm -hmm. about um, and, and more about kind of a, about adapting to constraints that are imposed on them. Yeah. That's what I feel like I'm hearing from the I've, I haven't really listened to the podcast much yet, but that, it sounds like that's part of the context that's being discussed there. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It's kind of each episode about a different a different person or like how how have you connected to the to the podcast through like through the so stories, et cetera? It's different stories. And sometimes it's about like one person in specific. Sometimes it's about like one event. Okay. And they're gonna explore that. And it's like really like this part of like code switching is like really like embedded in the episode, which is like you can get it, but it's not a specific of like oh, I did that, or I talked to people like that. No, it's mm -hmm. just like, I navigate my life this way, right. and so on. Mm -hmm. So one question I always feel like it's important to ask is like, where do we go from here? Right, so kind of what do we, because <laughs> we already brought up like some pretty big challenges, right? And you mentioned kind of the, yeah, I mean, okay, so we're into it. I met you 10 minutes ago, and now we're gonna like try to tackle this challenge. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, well, but you also mentioned, um, Oh, what's the word I want? Um, the insularity, kind of the jargon, the insularity of parts of academia. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think a lot of folks struggle with. I, I struggle with it when it feels like, um, I want to say a signaling exercise, but that sounds kind of dismissive and pejorative, but it feels like it's, it's how you signal to other folks that you're, you're in the group is that you have to use this incredibly specialized jargon which by its nature can be feel kind of exclusionary. And I've, I've started to feel like that's a real problem in lots of parts of academia. And we kind of have this idea of, oh, we have the science policy interface. So like, you know, we'll have some people that are specialized to do science and other people are specialized to do the interfacey stuff. And I, and I kind of wonder, well, wouldn't it be nice if like the academics and the scientists were better 
just a part of our training where we're trained to talk in more broadly understandable ways. How do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with that. I feel that that is like this disconnect sometimes. And I and also like I feel that it's not the only solution of like scientists being better communicators. It's not like the only solution. And people are like really targeting on that as well. Right. And I think it has to be like a balance. It's not okay. that we don't need like people that work like facilitating or the social science, but we need like as for our training, we need to be like a little bit of jack of all trades and understand everything. It's not that you're gonna do everything. I'm not like I'm a fisheries person and I will not like get and be like writing a project by myself on social data or like human dimension because that's not my expertise. Right. I I need to know about that. I need to know as part of my training. Mm -hmm. But I need to also make collaborations and bring people into the table. Mm -hmm. And also this part of like science should be more accessible. I think this jargony and thing like elevated talk that people have, it's like just this make like this, how do you say like distance? Yeah, distance us from, right. not us, you see that thing like distance us. Right, from <laughs> us them. Again. Yeah. I know. Uh, it's like just like distance people sure. in general. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it feels like a bit of an arms race where in terms of new methods or new words, you know, you, once someone else invents a new method, you kind of have to keep up by learning that method or that new word and then invent your own new method and your own new word. Yeah. To kind of stay in the game. Yes. Like, <laughs> I was um, part of this paper. Oh a while ago and the per like everybody was like changing all those like names of like terms and it was like why you're giving another introducing another term people are publishing this for ages right. in this term you don't need like new words <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes and i know there's more than one way to think about this but sometimes i'll i'll read something and i'll think wait we already have a word for this that everyone would understand yeah <laughs> you know like let's use that one I've, I've, I've known that word since I was 15. Let's use it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to ask you also about the time you spent with fishers and of course with fish, et cetera. But um, I think it'd be, now would be a good time actually to do the whole, the, whole, the whole podcast maneuver where we say we take a step back. <laughs> I've learned that that's, that's the standard way to do things. One of my favorite podcasts, Pod, uh, Planet Money, actually had in their thousandth episode, they, they talked about how they kind of give you a nugget of a story to kind of get you interested. And then they say, oh, okay, let's like, let's walk back and like give the background. So Bia, maybe we can actually, I think it'd be nice to, to hear about your own background, kind of what got you to this point, And then we can kind of re-engage with some of these ideas that we've already started to get into. Um, so you're from Brazil. Yes. You got your, you went to, to undergraduate in Brazil, I understand. I was doing mm -hmm. the, the standard like internet searches that one does. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, in oceanography, is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, so what led you to, to even to that point to to want to study oceanography? Were there some formative experiences? How did that work out for you? Well, so I have like to go back a little bit more because in Brazil it's really interesting. Like you, when you're out of um, high school, you have to decide now on like to apply for like your career. And then you do a test to go to that. And that is like, no, it's not like US that you kind of like come to university and you try everything and then you, okay, this is my path. Right. And Brazil is like, this is it. So since I was like really young, I grew up like in the Amazon okay. and like a really small town. And I would do like really a lot of like nature and I would go a lot like to the coast with my grandparents. And they both like, grandparents they lived on the coast and I just like loved the ocean and I always like had like this connection but then growing up because of my my parents they were like really you have to study you have to be a doctor and I was like okay so medical doctor <laughs> okay yeah yeah, I, yeah. Heard, I initially heard actor and I was like okay let's talk about that but you, you said oh doctor. no yeah, yeah. that would have been a different thing <laughs> all right 
so uh i went like through like all my schooling like with this mentality of like no i'm gonna be a medical doctor I'm gonna study for that and then i when i arrived in high school like last year like choosing the careers i had a friend that was like hey pm check it out this course like this career it looks like you and it was like no kidding a paragraph explaining what oceanography was in a paragraph and mm -hmm. i was like is this is my calling <laughs> oh that's so fantastic i signed up like behind my mom's back and i did like apply for a lot of different schools and got in in pharmacy and then in oceanography and then i dropped pharmacy after a semester like doing both and just like continuing oceanography so you you applied to both and got into both so you were allowed you would have been allowed to study both things if you'd wanted to is that yeah i was like two different universities and oh, i was okay. like what well, both courses full-time like that sounds like a lot eight hours a day and yeah. i was doing that and do for like actually not even one semester it was like two months of that okay and in your <laughs> and under, like, yeah mom i'm out I'm doing oceanography and it was like a lot of crying, a lot yeah. of things my mom didn't understand. I'm also like, uh, kind of like my mom and my parents, they never got the chance to do university when they were young. My mom sure. did like finish when I started university. So they didn't understand why, what I was gonna do, what is being a researcher and what is that, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, it kind of gets back to, to legibility, which is something I kind of harp on constantly here, right? It's, um, I think a bunch of academics that have heard from them, well, it's like, well, my parents don't really know what I do, or my family, it's this big like research black boxy thing. Teaching, maybe they understand a bit more, but the idea that you just go somewhere, and make models, like what's a model, right? That, is that something I see in a window? Like what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much that. Yeah, my dad was like always supportive. He just like, he, is being like from like a really poor background hmm. and he is like one of those few people that is like actually made it and hmm. then he always like say like no studying is good you're like gonna study yeah is what you want is what you want my mom was like other things she called like the chancellor what? to ask him about what is oceanography why they offer this course that is not even like a recognized profession in brazil right well i mean i guess yeah you don't like you go you walk down the street to see a pharmacist you don't walk down the street to see an oceanographer yeah <laughs> but it should change it <laughs> okay that's good i mean i imagine they're quite proud of you now yeah yeah <laughs> okay and so um in college then were there certain courses that really gripped you that you remember certain teachers Yes, and like for better or for the worse, I will not like mention names, but my first uh, biological oceanography class ever, mm -hmm. it was like the first day. And <laughs> I think that was like, I actually forged my path through academia. Mm -hmm. uh, the professor was like, if you are here to study dolphins, raise your hand. And like two girls raised their hand. And if oh, you dear. want to study like whales, raise your hand. Or like other people raise their hand sea turtles and i was like yes <laughs> and then he's like forget about it you guys are not here to work with charismatic species you have to be dealing with what is important and i was like oh great <laughs> so how did that how did you feel about that message do you think he was right in some ways or how did it how did it impact you definitely not so okay. i did like a lot of Throughout the undergrad, I was involved with a lot of different labs, like kind of like a filler mm -hmm. to see like what I want to do. And I work with planktology and I had like the uh, undergrad scholarship, research, like research scholarship. And then I worked with like climate change and looking like at paleo reconstruction, pretty much like looking at the sediment cores and with like the pollen sample because the pollen they have like this little layer of silica that's like not silica but like um trying to follow oh uh, i'm trying to follow <laughs> yeah uh, what's a poly in this case poly oh pollen oh pollen like tree pollen yep, yes yep, i'm with you sorry okay no 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 
So I, I was like pretty much like looking at sediment cores from like thousands of years ago to mm-hmm. see what kind of pollen was in the sediment to reconstruct the climate based on the vegetation I that was in the, in the place that was in Marajal Island in Brazil. And then after that, I was like, you know what? I'm not happy with that. I don't want to be like in the microscope all the time. Mm-hmm. And people can do that. And I graduated and I tried to apply for like conservation projects, like internships all over the world to uh, work with sea turtles. Because I was like, this is my dream. I need to do that. And I was like a frank letter, save like all the money from my little scholarship that was like, two years of wages and had like my entire family to chip in. And then I ended up like in Costa Rica to be like a research assistant in a conservation project. So okay, so this was, that was after school? Yeah, after school. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then I spent three months there and went to another project and they just offered me a job as the biologist to run the entire sea turtle camp. Sounds like a dream come true. Was <laughs> yeah. It, was it? <laughs> it was really hard. So I was like in a part, like it was in central Costa Rica in the Pacific side. And unfortunately on the beach that I worked, there was like a lot of like, it was like a drug r- route. Okay. So we had to deal with that a lot, like uh, drug dumping on the beach, kind of not dumping, but like the transactions yeah yeah and we had like the close guards they would call us like okay don't go to the beach today make the volunteers not be there wow that's intense and we're like okay uh-huh. and i was like 21 years old so i was like overseeing like 60 volunteers at the time and no experience like my first work experience ever right <laughs> it was an interesting time yeah okay yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've kind of stumped me. I'm not sure what questions I want to ask about like international drug trades. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And then from there, you, you went to Mexico to get your master's was the next yes. formal step. Kind of. It was like a really weird step because uh, I was in Costa Rica on this project. And then I was like, I'm tired of being here. I feel that's like like some bad things happen and I was just like, oh, I just like don't want to be like working this site anymore. So I'm going to look for other words. So I started to apply for other jobs. And then I saw like in the Sea Turtles new, newsletter job board that someone wanted a person to do a master's. And I was like, oh, maybe master's is a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I connect with the, the person. And coincidentally, he is a German uh, poker coach. He's uh he worked in brazil where i worked before and now he's a professor in mexico so i contacted him and he's like okay you have um three weeks to write a project in spanish can you do that and i was like sure i didn't speak spanish in the time really i spoke but i never wrote anything in spanish so i was like yeah writing is different than speaking (laughs) Yeah. yeah and i was like okay so I did. And then I got in. Well done. And, yeah. And then I just had like this crazy thing to go to Mexico. And yeah. Wow. And then you say, so then you got your master's there. Yes. Um, okay. And that was in marine and coastal sciences. So that was how similar or different is that for you from oceanography as you experienced it in the undergrad? Well, it was like super, like really similar. So oceanography in general was like really broader. So I had like, I had the training, all the oceanographies, like physical, chemical, biological, and geological. Mm. And that was like pretty much more focused on the biology, like marine biology Mm -hmm. side of things. So it was a lot of uh, continuing like stats. And my project was... uh, modeling now was like uh, looking at uh, population models for to estimate survival of green sea turtles okay. and green sea turtles in Mexico 
So it was like more applied, I feel. Okay. I had like this taste of everything on undergrad and this one was like more applied and more applicable skill. Okay, and that's, is that when you really took a, the dive more into modeling? Because I understand that that's kind of what you've been doing since, or at least in large yeah. part. Yeah, it was like my first thing with um, like, uh, actually my first experience with modeling and okay. been doing since then. It was like really nice. And also like the time that I kind of like switch a little bit of the gears instead of like being focused on sea turtles, I was like, oh, I really want to work more with fishermen. Okay. Wait, so that was that that when did that happen? When your master's or when you went to your master's? Am? Okay, doing your master's. Yes. Okay. So two questions then. One, uh, what what spurred that? What were you, is it because you were around fishermen and, and kind of thought, wow, these are interesting folks? Also, but so one of the things is like for a lot of conservation projects all over, uh, we rely a lot of people on the field and these people are like the fishermen. Okay. So that's like amazing and it's like amazing partnership. So I was lucky enough to be working with uh, Grupo Cultivero de las Californias. Yeah, so I, they are an organization that are like in the ground since the 90s and they pretty much, um, they work with all local fishermen. So the fishermen are part of the project. They collect the data every oh, month wow. on okay. sea turtles and they do a lot of the conservation and it's like really beautiful project. So I was going to field every month and going on like people's houses and like staying in people's houses and like going fishing, going like uh, capture the sea turtles to do like the biological exams and uh, all they collect of data. Yeah, I mean, it sounds nicer than worrying about when the next drug dump is going to happen. Yeah, it's really nicer. Okay. <laughs> not that the Costa Rica one was not nice. It was like really learning and humble experience, but there was like a lot of problems involved. I mean, so. it's just a lot to deal with, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but so you, um, something that I've heard from a lot of guests on this podcast is an experience like that where they initially studied oceanography, ecology, et cetera. And then they had a moment where they realized that human behavior really matters a lot. Yeah. If we're going to try to conserve things. And for a lot of people that actually marks a transition towards a more social science oriented career. Yeah. Now that doesn't seem to be happening in the same way with you or has happened, but you're still like, you're having these experiences, these social experiences that um, I imagine have insensitized you to the importance of behavior. Definitely. Could you, could you talk about and, that? Yeah. And can I just like say one of the things that was really cool from my master's, like the research is mm -hmm. um, one of like the, sites that the sea turtles were doing really well is like actually coincides to be like one of the sites when where the fisheries is doing really well on the point standpoint of conservation they have all like these quotas is all like shared within the community and it, it, that was reflected on like the survival of the sea turtles and in the opposite the other side was like there was like a lot of illegal fishing Mm -hmm. and poaching and you see like the sea turtles were like growing um were, were leaving the site faster and okay. not growing as fast and where were these two sites again Bia? was like in the coast of uh baja california in okay, mexico yeah. yeah so that is like those little lagoons so it's between yeah. like Bahia de los angeles that's like the awesome example of like uh organized fisher fisheries Okay. And the other one is like Bahia Madalena, that's like a big site and that is like a lot of lot okay. of stakeholders. Have you ever heard of Javier Basurto or Elena Finkbeiner? They're colleagues of mine that have worked yeah, in Baja she's California. My friend. Oh, Elena is? Yes. Yeah, we've had her on this like a uh, like six months ago or something. She was a guest on the podcast. Oh my gosh. I didn't I have to listen. You just to gotta that scroll one. down. She's there, yeah. That's amazing. So yeah, I just like saw so I was in Monterey. So I moved back to, I was like, first in here, and then I was in Monterey, I lost my job. Sadly, wait, wait. And I had oh, to okay. move back. <laughs> wait, when was this, just now? Just now, like when oh. you first contacted me, I was like- I knew you were like, moving. moving. Okay, yeah. but now you're in Monterey again, or where are no, you? No, I'm in Boulder. 
Boulder. Well, that's a nice place yeah. too. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we'll get there. Um, okay. All well, I mean, so now you've really like piqued my interest. Uh, so there's these two communities. One of them is sharing the resource. And of course, as someone who like studies community-based natural resource management, I want to know what you mean by shared. It was, it was, it's like not really shared. Sorry. I used the wrong term. They're like a co-op. Okay. They're like a really strong co-op. Okay. And they really target like lobster. Okay. Um, and it's like really well managed. And actually it's like one of the examples of like good management on fisheries. Mm. And that's like all like grassroots and they're like have this strong co-op. They uh they do a lot of like also they sponsor a lot of like environmental or conservation research. Okay. So and they were like donating their time, their boats should go, go like see the turtles and right. do, collect all the data. So why, I think this is actually a really hard question. I struggle with it, say in my work in the Dominican Republic with fishers there and other places, like why do you think they're willing to do all that stuff? How do you think they got to that point in the first place? Wow, that's like a tricky question. I don't know how they got into that point in the first place, but I know that's paying off a lot to be organized to like actually catch sustainability sustainable yeah. yeah i mean i think it's a challenge for me it's on the social science side it's you can see a system and you kind of you can see it working but it's hard to, and you can see another system that's not working and sometimes i wonder do we need to kind of if we knew more of the history of these places would that tell us how one of them got set off on one path maybe a while ago and the other one didn't maybe it was an important local leader maybe there was some like mm -hmm. some conflict in one town that really got out of hand which can happen yeah i believe so and also like uh, i think it's like more of like a sense of community mm -hmm. because like in the other place that i was like citing that is like a lot of people with that comes from everywhere to fish okay so that is the community there they're like really uh how to say like together, but there's mm -hmm. like so many people from everywhere else that comes like during the fish season. Okay. So it's, I think it's like, it's hard to get in the common sense and the other community is like way smaller and they're like really like managing their okay. resources and more organization. So that maybe helps them um, to have more social capital in a smaller, more mm -hmm. cohesive community. Okay. Okay, so you yeah. saw that story and that was that was interesting. So the, the other question I had, um, and this is also relating to your PhD work, where I understand you continue to do some modeling. Mm -hmm. um, I say some, sounds like quite a bit. <laughs> um, so for someone who doesn't do models, for someone, mm -hmm. right, so someone who's listening and thinks, well, this word model, I'm not quite sure what it means. It sounds nice. It's, it's, these other people do it. What is a model and why do you like them? So that's a good question. So a model, let's see, let's do like the basic training yep. of like a pilot. Okay. Uh, airplane pilot. Mm -hmm. Would you trust an airplane pilot that never piloted the, the plane? Okay, I can, I can follow you so far. No, I would not. So, and if I told you like that he had a lot of training on the simulator, a flight mm -hmm. simulator. So pretty much like the model would be like this flight, the analogy of like this flight simulator that we are like trying to see what is like, what are the underlying processes that are happening in the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to understand that so we can like set management goals and targets. Now uh, for like sea turtles, what is like why that was important to know their survival because with that you can also estimate how many of them are there right and how and you also can estimate the trends on the population is the population increasing is decreasing is just stable you mm -hmm. can you can know those things and without models you would be like relying on observation that you were like kind of like i think there are more but i'm not really sure okay so, uh, so we're talking about a simulation model, it sounds like. In my mind, that's distinct from like a statistical model, which I'm more familiar yeah. with. Yes, so I, so the one for my PhD that I 
was like mentioning it's like more of like this simulation part of model okay that we are like trying to like recreate the ecosystem and then make like different like flavors of like scenarios okay. so you can know which scenario is like the best one so you can like think about your management strategies based on that scenario got it so this is so we'll need to cover this ground too now so you then went to umass university of massachusetts amherst yes that's in western massachusetts I should know yes. this, I guess. It's, it's not very far from where I am, really. I know, um, New England. Yeah. Um, it's been hot here this summer. Um, okay. And then you, you, you got your PhD there in 2019. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, PhD in environmental conservation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then you, you had sent me before this talk uh, a PLOS One paper looking at some modeling that you had done in the New England area, but also back in Brazil. Yeah, so actually that's two different things. Okay. So I, my, my PhD was like really interesting from like my path. So I came to US after, like after going to Mexico, I worked for a while and then mm -hmm. I was establishing a project in Brazil to work with like local fishermen and mm -hmm. to assess the species of conservation concern. So mm -hmm. I built all this project. I came to US with like a scholarship and because of visa restrictions, I couldn't travel to Brazil every year to do field work. Oh, crap. And I learned that after a year <laughs> into the PhD. So I had to change gears and okay. reinvent myself like Madonna. So I just like, I had like um, one of my colleagues were was working on uh, historical ecology, and mm -hmm. we had like some historians in our lab, and then that really sparkled some years on my on my brain when he started like to work on this like historical data, and he was like assessing the produ produ production, like mm -hmm. how many fish is produced in like a lake and a pond system and like looking at that on the perspective of like removing dams or like before like because you know that in new england that is like dams everywhere yeah because they were like for meal for electricity for energy and a lot of those dams are really in bad shape mm -hmm. which is like is better like to remove them than like to pay the millions of dollars to try to make them safe mm -hmm. and there is like a lot of pushback because people want their lakes their ponds the way they are and it's better for ecologically it's better if you have like a connected environment so this colleague was like estimating like what is the historical like biomass like the weight or how much fish was there before the dams and with that, I was like, oh, that's interesting. It would be like interesting to look at that from like more um, food web point and do like a big ecosystem model and see like what would happen in the environment if we had like this full connectivity using this historical data. So that's what I did in one project. And because I was too like feeling in my heart, Brazil, I had like this little data from like one field work that I was there just like to do my study design mm -hmm. and it's like one of like my passions of my place is like this big island that's really wild this the time that I was there for my first year for my PhD was the first scientific exp expedition on the coast ever on that coast so oh, wow. I walked with uh, was it me uh the is like in a marine protect area like the chief chief of like the protect area two other uh one fisherman one uh person that was like maintaining our boat and two friends that were like help helping me on the field work so we walked the entire six we biked pretty much carrying our bikes all the way like down like 63 kilometers down the coast and like cataloging everything that we saw so with that, I did like the other part of the project, 
that was like on species of conservation concerning Brazil, which is pretty much like what my dissertation came to. That's like developing models to help management and decision making. Got it. Okay, so let's talk about the New England piece mm -hmm. um, and what you were also talking about. So the PLOS One paper, which we'll post to the show notes, was it looks like that was the publication based on a large chunk of your dissertation work? Yes. Okay, okay. Okay, so I mean, the connectivity aspect makes sense because I mean, you're talking about anadromous fish, so they need, to, mm -hmm. they need to go up and spawn. So obviously, if they can't do that, that type of like disruption of connectivity makes sense. Um, can we get back to the, to the modeling then the discussion mm -hmm. of, of the role of modeling? So the way you described it, it sounds like the, the models you're making are designed to have management implications. It's kind of when I hear scenarios mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, please forgive me and feel free to hold my hand through this as much as you want. Mm -hmm. Um, when I hear scenario modeling, I think about, okay, a scenario of like, let's take out these dams or these dams or all the dams and kind of see what happens. Um, so I guess uh, a couple questions that, that occur to me now, you mentioned um, the role of historical ecology and I saw it in the PLOS One paper as well as being an important part of these simulations you were running. Yeah. So I talk to ecologists sometimes and um, I've had this impression that there's a dip one difference between ecology as it's currently practiced and social science is that a fair amount of social science is reasonably historical. Some social science definitely isn't. So like some social science really struggles to understand the importance of history. And I think that's a problem that we have actually. But I, you know, I had had the impression that most ecologists that I bumped into, I didn't, I had never heard the term historical ecology. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot, you know, I, I know a lot of experimentalists, you know, like, let's, let's do this to this side and like, let's wipe out these termites and not those termites and see what happens, et cetera. And so I had had the impression that there was, you know, a, uh, maybe a similar disregard of history and a lot of ecology. Am I wrong? Or, or what has been your experience with the role that history plays in kind of conservation, biology, ecology, et cetera? And then how, and how did it work to incorporate it in your own project? Yeah, I don't want uh, <laughs> to crucify anybody, but that is like a really like people dismiss a lot of of like historical data, and just because it's not collected to the standards of nowadays doesn't mean that's not useful. And mm -hmm. I believe that we do need to have a history, we do need to know what was before so we can set our targets to the future. Right. We can't like live just like present and future or like hopes of the future. You need to understand what happened in the past and how to not like make the same mistakes. Because one of the fascinating things when I started like to dive into the, the historical ecology was that on like, the commissioner, fisheries commissioner report, that's 1800s, 1900s. Wow. Like early, they are pointing out the same things that we are still pointing out on current stock, stock assessments. Right. And that for me was mind blowing because I was like, oh, wait, they already seen like um, reductions of fisheries and trying like doing recommendations of like, reducing the catch levels in 1800s so right you know so if we like don't like bring the past we cannot like have like a base mm -hmm. the same thing of like the pair like the shifting baselines where you like you know you rely on your memory so you have like to bring this memory right. otherwise you just like forget and you like are conditioned to whatever conditions are right now. This is the normal. Yep. This is what's gonna happen, and this is our baseline. And it cannot be like that. It's right. Not sustainable. That's from Daniel Polly's work. Is, is he yeah. the fellow who introduced that? Idea? Yeah. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a creepy idea, right? The fact that each of us we're just kind of a very slow boiling frog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so you mentioned uh, another term that I find really interesting. So these stock assessments. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware that in the, the New England ground fishery, you know, there, there's a lot of historical tension between fishers and scientific agencies, et cetera. Mm-hmm. A lot of those have focused around stock assessments. I don't know how much your work engaged with that. Um, but I know there was a criticism of these stock assessments as being, well, there's been an historical criticism of these kind of maximum sustainable yield oriented fishery mm-hmm. models for being overly simplistic for, for not incorporating things like bycatch necessarily yeah. and thinking only about one species at a time. How does your work engage with that discourse about kind of criticisms of overly simplistic models that are supposed to have management implications? So models are like really useful, like mm-hmm. all of them, but there is like being like this shift towards ecosystem-based approaches, which is just like leaving a little bit of like the single species ap- approach that you're saying that they just like look at the survival mortality of one species. Mm-hmm. And now we are like actually looking at the survival mortality of this on one species within the ecosystem and all the traffic relationships that are in the ecosystem, what species the this one population supports mm-hmm. and how is like interconnected. And I think this is the the approach, at least like that's like where I tend to do like with my models, okay. just like incorporate more. So I like all the models that I did for the New England, they are uh, food web based. Okay. So it's pretty much like you have like a capture of the entire food web and all the connections within the ocean, including fisheries. And then you can like set different scenarios and you can test what this fishery reduction or like this increase or even like climate change, other like physical conditions can have uh, like can affect the environment. Okay. So would you do, you, do you view your models as being an important step away from these kind of historically more simplistic single species based models or? or, or? I don't think it's a step away. I think okay. it's like it has to be combined because a lot of the data that I got is from like like single species stock assessments. Got it. Which is what is available. So okay. I think that it has to be like a more holistic. It's not that you are like either or. It's just like combining what is like the best tools that are available. And one of the things that is really important to know is that we do we make models not for because we think this is the best, but what is like demanding? What the management? What is mm-hmm. like gonna help? like the decision making and if every single condition is different every location's condition is different and the needs are different so you have like to address those needs okay yeah i mean as you were talking about this in terms of collecting the data collecting all that data or, or in the first place sounds pretty daunting it sounds like that's got to be one of the main bottlenecks to doing this is just how much data you need to get thankfully a lot of people collected the data. Okay. <laughs> so I just like pretty much pull together years and years of data. Okay. And so Bia, when we're talking about f- a food web model, is that, so um, that makes me think of like a network analysis. It is, exactly. Okay. And so are these nodes of species that are eating each other? No, so it is, it's, no, it's, Perfect. It's just like thinking about networks and like network system. Okay. So you have like the species or the nodes Mm -hmm. and the connection between them is like the predation or yeah, it's like the energy transfer. It's like this Mm -hmm. predation. So you got these different trophic levels in the food web? Yes. Okay. Okay. What software do you use for that? So for that, I use uh, Ecopath with Ecosim framework. Okay that was developed by people in UBC, like Polly, uh, Christensen, and Water, Walters. So there's a very, it's a highly specialized software just for this kind of model. So it is the, the software, but they do have like the implementations on R and MATLAB, and I use all. Okay. <laughs> I was like, every single one, <laughs> let's test this. Okay. So yeah, it's pretty much like a framework, and then they have like the software for the framework and the framework is in R in MATLAB. Okay. 
So this reminds me of a talk I once went to um, by a friend of mine who's a climate scientist, and he was talking about these global climate models. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating from a kind of sociology of science perspective and how just how organized these folks seem to be. There are different expert groups for different aspects of like the 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 climate system. There's and, and they have to worry about the the, the biosphere and all, all the different components. How does how does this work? Are there different like expert groups as well for for these different ecopath food web models? Like what is the kind of social landscape for that look like? Yeah, it's pretty much like that. So uh, all of my ba- my models were based in previous models. For example, like the Emacs is the energy ma- uh, energy balance. I forgot like the acronym. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> that was like developed by Noah, and uh, that's from like Link, Jason Link. He made all these models, and he, like no kidding, there was like specialists in every single part, like people that are specialized in plankton, phytoplankton, and they all put together this big working group and this massive, and make this massive work to develop those models. So as research goes, and thankfully it's like that, I just like fed from those previous models to like advance or like incorporate new species. Okay. Um, okay, so I have to ask the next question. Um, what do you view the role of this modeling in, so it has obvious management implications, it seems, if you say, okay, well, you've got different scenarios, this Mm -hmm. this scenario might happen, we might need to worry about this, et cetera. What do you view the role of modeling in science? And, And related to that is how do you, um, how do you test these models? So you have some data, you feed that in to kind of get some parameters for the model. It's, sorry if that's mm-hmm. like overly simplistic no, language. And then what, how do we know that the models, are, we, are, are, are you, is there backcasting? Is there forecasting? Do you, I mean, I guess this is similar to when you have a new theory, right? You, you can't mm-hmm. test a theory with the same data you use to generate the theory. You need new data yeah. to see if, if, well, go for it. So the way that you pass models is pretty much like you put the day, the conditions and then you backcast and see like how is the pre- predictability of your model and if it's like has, has like any um, parsimony with what happened in the past mm-hmm. and then you can do like the forecast in the case of like the climate models mm-hmm. works this way okay and so do you then do you do you tweak parameters to try to improve its fit yeah. with the data yeah so that's like always like approaching with caution because you don't want to overfit a model because otherwise you're going to be like explaining exactly what happened and will right. not be replicable for the future Right. So yeah, we, I've also heard that so, called over determining a model. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how do you know when that's happening? Like, how do you, that makes total sense that that would be a concern. And also it'd be like a psychological concern. I could see it being like, oh, but we could just, if we did this, we, the curve would fit better. Yes. It's, there is like a lot of approaches on the modeling framework that actually people use to assess that the overfeeding and penalize overfeeding models. So that is a huge like literature on that. And normally like people try to, not people try, they follow those. We tend to follow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So how, um, what would you say then is, you know, how did you feel the contribution was of the work you did in the PhD in this system? Like what was like the main result that you can describe for listeners? So the cool, cool thing that is on the, um, that matter is that like some of my models are being used by NOAA for now they're implementing that with like the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Salmon. Okay. So that's like really nice to have your one thing that you build that's like being used for management. That's awesome. On. And that is like also like other uh, part of the models that are used for like 
on main for like the all the projects that they're doing for like remove them removal and mm -hmm. based on like we did a little economic assessment of what would happen if we take like this parts of like the like free or open the connectivity of these parts of the rivers in Andreskagen and what like what would what would be the benefits and that was like okay. using the models too okay and so that was those are some of the when you talk about exploring different scenarios a lot of it was about like what dams mm -hmm. might be removed etc yeah it was like yeah that was pretty much the goal of the model the model okay. like show was more of like a practical like understanding and like showing how the marine ecosystem would benefit if we had this connectivity Got it. in terms like looking at one little fish <laughs> that's mm -hmm. uh alive from mm -hmm. like the all the anadromous fish mm -hmm. and that was like one of like exercise which now is being like starting to be used to actually do like management on the ground management how does that feel feels great yeah <laughs> i can like imagine I feel my mission <laughs> right yeah that's super cool so, you, but you said mm -hmm. Noah's using it, and Noah, I I associate Noah with like fisheries policy, et cetera, less with mm -hmm. dams. Is that is Noah actually also interested in like dam-based scenarios because they have implications for for fisheries or or what? So it's because like Noah, it is like so. If you think about that, it's like they're not really looking at the river connectivity, but Atlantic salmon is a species that's managed by then it's like on their jurisdiction so right. that's the influence okay and so because the scenarios you're exploring have implications for a species under their jurisdiction they're interested in what your model has to say yeah is that correct mm -hmm. okay what is your your i don't know i love talking to modelers because it's just it's, <laughs> it's it's kind of its own world what is your like favorite and least favorite part about modeling like the act of it well, the favorite, the results. When <laughs> you're like, fair enough. All right. Run. Okay. <laughs> they don't crash. Okay. And I think the least favorite is, I don't know, it's just like so much work into that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of coding. Um, not so. From those, I didn't do like coding. Okay. Which is, was easier. Sure. But yeah. Not so much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of just kind of unglamorous grunt work that needs to get done to produce these like flashy results that you see in a PDF. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so you, when I contacted you, I forget when it was, a couple months ago? Mm-hmm. Because now- <laughs> The word at, was ending. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, we haven't kind of talked about that, but it's it's kind of hard <laughs> to avoid just, yeah. I've honestly been, we didn't do it as much in the beginning of this interview, but I've been starting some interviews just being like, so how is it going, right? Like, how are you doing? The world's kind of on fire, you know? Um, yeah, it was like a really tense few months, but then I found a job at UW with Trevor Branch. I don't know if... I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah. So that was like really... Congratulations. ...from these guys. <laughs> Thank you. All right, and now you're in Boulder. Yes. Okay. So my husband works here. Okay, at UC Boulder. No, he the he works for NREL. That's a national energy lab. Oh yeah. Okay. So he works with like uh, offshore wind turbine optimizations. Okay. He does all the coding. He does. He's the co okay. <laughs> Not for me, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. How's the front range treating you? So you you were moving when I so you did this move like three months ago, was it? Yeah. Okay. How's it going? It's good. So before moving to California, I was already here for a year. Okay. Yeah. So it's like bring back because of academia, I got a job, and then we were like, yeah, we're gonna just be apart. Um, we got married in July and I got the job offer before our wedding okay. and then I accept and then I had to move in September. I like just like the generic phrase because of academia as just an explanation yeah. for just anything. It's like, 
Why, why, why'd you do that? Well, because of academia, like what it is ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So can we, um, before wrapping things up, it'd be good to talk then about your current project that you're getting started on, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Can, so can you just tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I just started on this project is, um, pretty much like looking at uh, Pacific Herring in the Prince William Sound. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but back in 1989, there was like the Exxon Valdez Expill, oil spill. I do remember it was that. It like a big in impact. And right after the spill, the Pacific Herring populations just like had a steep decline. And a lot of like effort, a lot of money are like put on other species to recover like the species of the Prince William Sound. But it's been 30 years and Pacific Herring is still not doing well. Hmm. So the project, like the full project is looking at what is like the causes of like the poor, the failed recruitment mm -hmm. or is when like the little fish become out of fish. Mm -hmm. like to the uh, reproductive phase. Yeah. So recruitment is I'm a fancy word for fish making more fish. Yes. I got it. <laughs> so what I'm like looking at right now is uh, spawning timing and how this affects the overwinter survival of like young of the year. Okay. So because of like we are having a lot of more and more this uh, climate events, strong climate events that are mm -hmm. not necessarily positive, like the warming of waters and we are seeing these impacts. And fish, they have like really strong cues like on the environment to like tell them like, oh, this is the moment to spawn. Right. This is the moment to lay your eggs so your descendants gonna have like a chance. So I'm like exploring what are like the factors, environmental, climatology factors and populational factors that are having on like this spawning time variability okay. and how that affects survival. Okay. And so are you doing that kind of as you did before with existing data sets? So that's like one of the things like I always worked with like existing data sets, which is really lucky. And that's the responding back to your question. That's like something that's frustrating sometimes oh. because <laughs> Big data sets with a big data set, a big responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just like sometimes it's just like trying to piece things. But yeah, yeah, this one I'm like really lucky to have this available data set that comes from like the 79 pretty much to okay. the present and looking at all this like available data on climate, environment, and population. Okay, and so is this going to be using Ecopath again to do a food web model? No, or? no. this okay. is just like uh, using GAMS, Generalized Additive Mix Effect Models. Oh dear, all right, all right. <laughs> it's like another like type of like modeling and that allows for flexibility. Okay. I'm selling that. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good thing. General Additive Mixed Effect, effect Model. model. I mean, so I've heard of mixed, I, well, okay. I'm, my brain's wanted as any, yeah. I don't know if I want to try to unpack that, to be honest. Okay. Um, well, that sounds really cool. So you'll be doing that for a, a year or two. One year for now and okay. hopefully more. <laughs> okay. That sounds really neat. And so, I mean, are you hoping that also this would have, you know, well, the management implications seem like they would be pretty straightforward to draw. Yeah. Okay. So the goal of this project is using this, uh, whatever we find that affects the spawning time, to use that into the existing stock assessment models. So that's okay. like make, helping the model to be like more robust, at least from that perspective. That is Help like a bunch stock. of people, okay. yeah. There's like a bunch of people working different aspects of this project with okay. a lot of smart people. So do you actually liaise also with um, like scientists working for government agencies too on this? Yes. Okay, super cool. Mm -hmm. um, well, so I'll ask you one last question. 
what is in apart from everything we've talked about what are your kind of hopes for the future with your science wow <laughs> that's a big question just to end with a, a softball here yeah yeah actually i don't know it's like a really hard softball <laughs> it's not it's not a softball at all yeah i really hope to still like work with um projects that actually have like real life management implications and that's one of the hopes for like my science and like hope for myself on mm -hmm. this matter i really would love like to work more of like the economic aspects interesting okay mm -hmm. so like a are there models like that that are both social and ecological of the kind that we've been talking about that is that a thing <gasps> good question i don't know okay well maybe you'll invent it Let's do it. I would love it. I know that there is like a lot of uh, pro, like the process, for example, like uh, the MSc processes that incorporate a lot of like social into, mm -hmm. and you have like the operational model and you have like the social aspect and you mm -hmm. feed that through the operational model. But yeah, it's like pretty much a process. I don't know about models that actually have like the operation models everything yeah i mean it sounds hard it does so hopefully someone else is working hard at it i guess yeah <laughs> hopefully thanks for listening everyone the finding sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the environmental social science network you can find us at essnetwork.net there you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on and you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects if you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just want to get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out.